acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of uh, household announcements, sort of, before I, we open the Word together. Tomorrow, very early in the morning, my dear wife is going to take me to the airport, and I'm going to go over and visit David and Terry Ann Wagner, and uh, I hate to say it, but more importantly, my daughter, Michael, um, and Annie Walker, who's over there. We have been exchanging emails and a few phone calls, and I'm, uh, I've been encouraged by the missions committee and the elders to go over and to visit David and Terry Ann, and this seems like a good time to do it when my daughter's there. And uh, so I will be gone for two weeks. I'll also see Beth Byerly, who's in South Africa, working with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And uh, John Evans in, uh, in Zambia also. I'm taking a package from his mom. And uh, then also John Shane, who some of you know, who is the Mission to the World uh, leader of the whole African region. And he is down in Cape Town. So I would ask for your prayers uh, as I'm gone for safety in every way and that I'll be an encouragement. I'll get a, a number of chances to, to uh, teach and to preach while I'm there and pray that I will do that well and not badly um, and that I will do it in a way that will help our brothers and sisters in Africa. Uh, but more than that, pray that I'll be an encouragement to all the people who are missionaries of our church. And I look forward to bringing back a report to you when I get back. Um, one other item. Uh, you know from, and by the way, all of you should be on the church email list. I ran into somebody this last week who uh, is a part of our church but doesn't subscribe. And I said to him, you need to subscribe. And all of you that do have email do need to subscribe to that email list. Uh, information as to how to subscribe to it is in the bulletin, I'm confident. Am I right? I'm not sure where, but just look at the bulletin, which is another thing you should do. And you'll find how to subscribe to that. And uh, anyhow, on that email list... Uh, I sent out a couple of articles, uh, one defending and one uh, not defending, but rather critiquing this movie by Mel Gibson. Now, you know, if you've been in church, that I have defended Gibson against charges of anti-Semitism. Uh, it is true that the Gospels can be viewed as anti-Semitic until you realize that Jesus is a Jew. Um, and, and so I do not want Mel Gibson to... Uh, unfairly attacked like this. On the other hand, Mel Gibson is a Roman Catholic, and uh, we are not. And that's not just a, a curious thing. That's a vital thing, uh, because otherwise it would be wrong for us to be in schism against the one true church. And so there must be a reason why we're Protestants and not Roman Catholics. And one of those reasons has to do with this issue of the nature of uh, worship and whether we should use images in venerating Jesus, members of the Trinity, how exactly we approach God. Now, uh, there are many of you who uh, I'm sure will disagree with me on this, but as you disagree with me, <laughs> I've noticed a, a few things. Um, and I should say, I have, I have come to the conclusion that I will not uh, encourage anyone to go see the movie because I do believe that it's a violation of the Second Commandment. That's my position. But some of you don't agree. And this is what I would say to those of you who don't agree. Number one, 
uh, I've put back on the lectern in the back a very short chapter from Knowing God. Uh, this, if there's any uh, classic of the 20th century in the English language for Christians, it's that book. It's Knowing God. And that chapter will very carefully open up to you what is at stake in the question of whether or not you should see that movie. Uh, it doesn't make your decision for you because J.I. Packer was not writing about that movie. But it will help you to understand what you should think and pray through as you come to your own decision. Uh, number two, remember, as you think about this, that there is a distinction between the first and second commandment in the Protestant world. In the Catholic world, there isn't. They compress the two. But in the Protestant world, we believe that there is commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and commandment number two, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven images. And so if, if, if your attitude about the issue of images and worship is, well, you know, nobody thinks that Jesus in Mel Gibson's movie is God. You know, we know he's a representation. And, and so it's not wrong. Well, you have not yet made a distinction between the first and second commandment. Because the first commandment tells you not to have any other God before God, right? So all you've done is said, all right, I won't have Mel Gibson's Jesus before my Jesus or the true Jesus. But then what about making graven images? That's where you have to focus your thinking. Um, and I would encourage you to go back and interact with uh, the reformers as they fought through this issue with the Roman Catholics. Having read that, you come to a decision that this is not a violation of the second commandment. By all means, go to the movie. But don't go to the movie because inside yourself you feel warm, pious feelings about it. <laughs> because remember that the Israelites had very warm, pious feelings about the golden calf. And not one of those Israelites thought that the golden calf was really God. It was just an aid that they needed to see the power of God. And so don't trust yourself. This is one of the basic rules of Scripture. Let him who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. Idolatry is a very sophisticated thing. It's not something that just the Old Testament is concerned about. In the New Testament, when the New Testament exhorts us to not... Be greedy, it says, why? Because such a man, a greedy man, is what? An idolater. God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with any other. And the fact that we listen to you know, major leaders like Billy Graham saying that from now on, every time he thinks of the cross, he'll see uh, that movie in his mind. And, and, all right. That does not justify you not coming before the Lord to a decision. All right? We don't give over ourselves to Tim Bailey or to Billy Graham. But we engage this issue very carefully. So be, be suspicious of your, uh, of, your, of your motives. Remember that idolatry is a very, very serious sin. And that we have to be careful around it. We don't... You know, try to get as close to the precipice as we can so that we see whether or not we fall. All right. Um, this is not something I've preached on for some time. I know that. Um, I thought about preaching about it today. I may in the future. Uh, there are others, including elders, that disagree with me on this. But hey, that's what makes a family interesting. Uh, 
If you and your wife agreed all the time, you wouldn't have any fights. And what a boring home that would be. <laughs> but there, there are not tensions among us, um, except the tension over what exactly is the truth. So pick up one of those articles. If they run out, get one from the church office. Um, read it. Study scripture. And make your decision biblically and in prayer. Don't make your decision because the Christian marketing machine is running amok. Okay? And let me tell you, it is. <laughs> All right. 800,000. 800,000. Copies of John Piper's Passion Book. First printing. 800,000. Okay. Now let's study Scripture. Oh, by the way, this is what the article looks like. And it's on the lectern in the back. Turn with me to Matthew, excuse me, to Luke chapter 15. As we've gone through the book of Galatians, we've seen the conflict between the, um, the Judaizers or the, the, the old-timers and the Johnny-come-latelys or the new-timers in the church. And if you think about it, in the book of Galatians, what you have is you have a continuation, really, of the same conflict that's at the heart of this 15th chapter of the book of Luke. And it's the conflict that is uh, constant, not just in, in Scripture, in the Gospels, and in the New Testament church, but it's a conflict that's, that's all throughout history. Uh, and it's a conflict that is not unknown in families. Families often have this sort of tension among their family members. Uh, the kind of tension that is opened up for us here uh, in verses 1 to 2 of our text uh, where we read, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him, meaning Jesus, both the Pharisees and the scribes, began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so what we have here is we have uh, lowlifes, I think that would be accurate to say, uh, people that didn't hang out in, in, in polite company, sinners, uh, tax collectors, people that took money from their relatives and friends and neighbors from their fellow Jews in behalf of the Roman Empire. And you can imagine how popular they were. Um, and other notorious sinners, people that made no pretense of being religious. And then all of a sudden, uh, they were hanging with Jesus. They were eating with him, traveling with him. It was obvious that he loved them. It was obvious that they loved him. Think of the woman who washed his feet with her hair. And the religious leaders hated this. Why? Well, that's what's at the heart of all the stories taking up chapter 15 of Luke. Um, we like to think of what these chapters say about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. But we ought to remember that behind all of that are verses 1 and 2 of the chapter where we see the religious leaders looking down their noses both at the sinners, and that's a constant in their lives, but at Jesus for hanging with the sinners. 
And that's the introduction that Luke gives to these three stories. In many of the exchanges that are recorded for us in the Gospels, many of them, between Jesus and these religious leaders, we see the motivation uh, of the Pharisees' bitterness comes from uh, a resentment and I think it's fair to say even a hatred for sinners. They think these people are a blot on the face of the earth and they cannot understand why Jesus befriends them. You almost get the feeling that one of the reasons that the Pharisees had for living, one of the things that kept them going from day to day, was to define themselves as other from sinners. Every morning they'd get up, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these sinners. All right, And it, re- it reminds me of an account um, written a number of years ago in the Chicago Tribune. There was a man whose brother was killed as a police officer by young punks. And uh, so they're asking this man uh, what he thinks and, and, and uh, you know, how he lives day by day knowing of the murder of his brother. And this is what he said. He said, think, speaking of the people who had murdered his brother who were now in jail, he said, just think of them lying in their hot cells, their bodies sweating, smelling their own stench. I know that sounds cruel, but that's all that keeps me going. I've got hatred in my heart. What else have I got? The only satisfaction I have is keeping him in prison, hoping that every day is rotten. Every year he sends a Christmas card signed the Rosato family. And then he says, I hope they live a long life and they spend every day of it in prison. Well, I think that that's a similar attitude to what the religious leaders had to sinners. It wasn't enough for them to love God. They lived to hate those who were dirty. And their existence was defined by looking down their nose. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this this sinner over here. Remember how the Pharisee prayed? Remember that? He can't get away from it. Even in prayer, he's thinking how superior he is. And so if we simply come to the story of the prodigal son thinking about how sweet it is that that son is welcomed by the father... We're making a mistake because clearly the context for that parable and for each of these lost thing parables is this beginning where it says the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him, near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, let's go ahead then and read our text, which uh, this week will be the prodigal son, Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Luke 15, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And he, Jesus, said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went out on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, And he sent him into his fields to feed swine, pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, 
How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of his, the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Now we can say that the, joy, that the theme of this whole chapter is the joy of finding something that was lost. First, Jesus talks about the joy of a shepherd who finds a lost sheep. And then he talks about the joy of a woman who finds money that has been lost in her home. And then here, third, he talks about the joy of a father who receives back a lost son. The tremendous happiness that both of them have at this reunion. But in this third story, there is a third person called the elder brother. And it is this elder brother that is meant to be a lesson, especially to the Pharisees. Jesus has already explained how natural it is for people to be joyful when they find something that they lost. But then, at, at the end of the section, in this third story, you have somebody else enter into. And so you've got verses 1 and 2 showing the resentment and grumbling of these, these good people. And you've got the, beautiful, the beauty of finding lost things and the beauty of finding a lost son so that it's growing, all right? And then all of a sudden, here comes the, the elder brother. Now, it's not accidental, is it? Um, to look at where people attack Scripture. It's not accidental that they say that uh, in Galatians that, that Peter and Paul didn't really have a fight, that this was just a dramatic effect used to try to teach the church something. Well, it's also not accidental that in this parable there is a, 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 an honorable tradition of people attacking the account of the elder brother. And they say that that was a later addition to the story, that it wasn't there when Jesus first taught it. All right. Well, now, why would they say that? 
Well, they would say it because it's really this elder brother that is the rub for us, isn't it? I mean, if you wanted to remove part of the story, you wouldn't want to remove the waiting father, and you wouldn't want to remove the prodigal son, but you would want to remove the elder brother because he is is, uh, quite pointed, quite pointed to us, isn't he? Well, Jesus does end the story with the account of this elder brother. Now, let's look at the three characters in the story to see what traits each of them have or what there is about them that we can learn from. The main character, of course, is the younger brother. Well, you could say it's the waiting father. Uh, Helmut Thielke refers to the story as the waiting father, whereas most of us know it as the prodigal son. So you can argue who is the central character. But... You wouldn't have a story if you didn't have the prodigal son. And the prodigal son demonstrates an old, old mistake made by many young men who decides, looking at his father and looking at his elder brother, and you're not sure which of them he looks at more closely, he decides to to throw in the towel that it isn't worth it. And he's going to go off and have a good time. He's not going to be tied down to his father's farm. He's going to get his money, his part of the inheritance. It was probably about a third of his father's wealth. And he's going to split. He's going to leave. He's going to have fun. And although it doesn't say that he did this, we all understand that he was rejecting his father's love. You can't do what he did without turning your back on the love of your father. So he goes to his father and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Kind of a crass thing to say, isn't it? Dad, uh, forget your love. I'll take your money. And then what did he do? Well, his dad gave him the money and the son took it and he went far away. And we look at Africa and we, we think of how many people are leaving rural areas and going to the city. Well, the same kind of thing was going on in the Roman Empire at the time Jesus told us. It was not uncommon for people to leave the rural areas they grew up in and to go off to the city. And many times the motivation was about what the motivation is for somebody in a town of 500 to move to Bloomington or in Wisconsin to move to Madison or out west to move to San Francisco or New York or L.A. Um, Many, many people move there and take whatever wealth they have so that they can party. And that's all this guy's about. He takes the money, he moves, let's say, out to L.A., he rents uh, a nice house or maybe even had enough money to buy one and then he lived loosely uh, he had a whole group of people that were around him because that kind of person can attract a crowd um, he spent money freely uh, he had lots of booze lots of sex uh, whores the bible tells us prostitutes uh, drugs uh, rock and roll and of course uh, Good food, everything that he could want, he had. But after a time, as as happens, uh, since all he was doing was spending money and not earning it, he ran out of the money. And then, of course, these good friends of his left him to rot. And rot he did. Um, He was alone and uh, it got to be tense. It got to be where he had to take a job and it got to be where he couldn't get a good job. The only job he could get was a job... Uh, caring for pigs. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, if you look at Leviticus in the Old Testament, chapter 11, verse 7, you'll see the attitude of every Jew to pigs. 
Leviticus 11.7 says, And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew cud, and what? It is unclean to you. The pig, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So, for a Jewish man to be uh, caring for pigs was lower than low. A uh, fitting end to this uh, prodigal son. And further adding to his humiliation was the fact that he had no food and that he began to be envious of the food that the pigs had. Now, it's hard for me to imagine this. I've never found myself looking at cows uh, munching on their grain and wishing that I could eat it. Um, But I'm sure for many people in history and many people today, they would give anything to be able to eat the way an American pig eats. And this was the condition of this prodigal son. He got to the point where he wished that he was fed as the pigs were fed. Now, these are the failures of this youngest son. They're they're painted very briefly. None of us have any trouble understanding them. We ourselves know people like this. Some of us are like this. Some of us have been like this. There's no difficulty. What does this son do when he's in this situation? Well, he admits his mistakes and his sin, and he humbly asks his father for forgiveness. And this is the same thing that the sinners that surrounded Jesus had done, and this is the point that Jesus is making to the Pharisees. These people have been disobedient, have lived lives of sin, but now they're turned away from their sin to forgiveness. And we all know that we should cultivate the same trait that Jesus shows us in this younger son. It's interesting to think about the context. If you can picture Jesus in a room with a bunch of sinners, people who are notorious for living wicked lives, and the love and acceptance that he has toward them, and the repentance that they have toward Jesus. Then Jesus tells this story about the prodigal son and the waiting father, right? It's very clear, isn't it, that Jesus stands in the place of God in forgiving sinners. You understand what I'm saying? If Jesus is telling this story, and it's obviously about God forgiving sinners, and it's in the context of them looking at Jesus and saying, why is he hanging out with these people? It's very clear that an underlying theme here is that Jesus, and this is a recurring theme in the Gospels, that Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. Well, anyhow, here we have this younger son. He does repent. He repents at a distance. He does get up. He does return to the Father. Think of the humiliation that that involved. But he doesn't, he doesn't do it uh, indirectly. He doesn't say, Dad, you know, back then when I did that, I was, I was wrong. But, Father... I'm no longer worthy to be called by your name. Make me a slave. This is an unequivocal surrender. This is a complete, complete repentance. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying any of us can do the work that we need to do to produce a complete repentance. But I am saying that nothing other than an unconditional surrender is accepted by God. We must go to him prostrate on the floor, face down, not giving buts and and ifs and ands. 
So this son comes home to his father and asks his father to forgive him and to bring him back into his home as a slave. Now, the father's the next character in the story, and it's not very difficult to find his good trait. His love for his son doesn't ever quit. It must have been very, very difficult for him to have his son ask for the money so that he could leave. But, you know, being a parent does often bring rejection like this. It's not unknown for mothers and fathers to see their children turn their back on them after years of love and care. And this is what this son did. The father received the request of his son, and we ought not to take it for granted that Jesus tells us that he gave the inheritance to his son. He did let his son go. And then he did what? Well, he waited for his son to come home. Every part of this parable has application to us, but we have to be careful not over-applying it. Um, And yet here at this point, the Bible tells us that not that the father went out searching for the son and uh, found the son with the pigs, but rather while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and embraced him. And Jesus says, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And it reminds us of Jesus and his compassion and love for the people in Jerusalem when right before his death, You remember he looked out over the city and said in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Well, this must have been exactly how that waiting father felt as he waited, as he saw his son leave, and then as he waited for him, wishing that his son would return. And so Jesus tells us that the Father was filled with compassion and love. And this is clearly, again, speaking of Jesus' love and compassion for the sinners that are surrounding him. And so we see this son rejecting his father and his father's love, going away, spending all his inheritance, being reduced to caring for pigs and then wishing he could eat as a pig, coming back and no ifs, ands, and buts about it, just a clear surrender that he was wrong. The father, seeing him a long way off and moved by compassion, embracing him, and not just embracing him, but then calling for a party, calling for a celebration, taking the wealth of the home and using it to celebrate the return of this son that he loved. All right, now, at this point, the story doesn't really have much of a hook. But enter the third character, and that's the elder brother. The elder brother appears. And what do we see in the elder brother? Well, look at the text and you'll see. His older son, verse 25, was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And then verse 28, when he heard, he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, 
For so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, do you recognize yourself in this, in this elder brother? That's the hook. And if we look at our homes, if we look at our families, if we look at our brothers and sisters, if we look at our children, we see this theme repeated over and over again. This is not uncommon. In our family, there was an elder brother who did return after 20, 25 years of complete rejection of his family. And it is not an easy thing to welcome someone home that you know has given two decades of pain to your parents. And so we ought not lightly to condemn this elder brother as this elder brother condemned his younger brother. Um, There are many things that the text says about this elder brother that are good. After all, he did obey his father. He did honor his father. His father says what about him? Verse 31, Son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. What a wonderful statement from a father to a son. But then he says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why does this elder brother not want to celebrate and rejoice? What is in his heart? And... Jesus does not go that far in saying it, but if you watch the relationship between the religious leaders and and, and the righteous people, between Jesus and these religious people of his time, and if you watch it develop over time, and then you watch what I would argue is the continuity of that same tension in the early church where you've got the Jews saying that the Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to be full members of Jesus' church. What you're dealing with here is the age-old tension between uh, the old-timers, the righteous people, and the Johnny-come-latelys and and the sinners. And it is never an, an item of joy when legalistic and pharisaical and self-righteous older brothers have to welcome the younger brother home. But then you have to ask the question, What was motivating his obedience to his father all those years? You know, if if he was so resentful of his younger brother, you have to wonder whether he didn't get up every morning and say, I thank God that I'm not like my younger brother. And if that's what he was saying every morning, you have to ask yourself the question, what was actually motivating his goodness? Was it his love for his father? Well, I, I believe that there was much of that, but... You have to wonder how much of it was simply a punitive and resentful and bitter attitude towards his younger brother. Does that make sense? And then, if the reason that we're in church is so that we can show that we're better than our younger sister or older brother, that's really pretty disgusting. Because we don't love God to show that we're better than other people. We love God because we know we're worse than everyone else and we cling to and we depend upon His mercy. 
In other words, people that worship God through His Son, Jesus Christ, are people who recognize that without the cross of Christ, there's no hope for us. And so, if every time we come in here, we drive by people out jogging Sunday morning and we feel superior to them, what does that say about us? And go home and and find out that our brother or sister has not been to church and we feel superior to them. And, And, you know... What exactly is the gospel that we believe? Well, we look at this and what we see is that the Father forgives the Son. But we see that the older brother will not. And then we remember Peter coming to Jesus in Matthew 18 and saying to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. And we know that Jesus is commanding us to forgive as his Father has forgiven us. In 1 John 1, 9, the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he, speaking of God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so... Jesus commands us to forgive. Jesus tells us that his Father forgives. And if we go into the book of 2 Corinthians, we see there an account of a man who has sinned seriously and the church, we believe, has put him under discipline, has excommunicated him. But then in 2 Corinthians, we see that this man, Paul, exhorts them to restore In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order to not say too much to all of you. And then verse 6, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, prodigal sons exist in the kingdom of God, they exist in families, and they exist in churches. Churches have to decide whether they will welcome home the prodigal son. Churches have to decide, we have to decide, whether this is a place that will love and accept sinners. It's not just an academic issue. It would be very easy simply to preach this text as being an evangelistic text, calling people to see the waiting father and to come home. And then to cut off the account of the elder brother. But let me ask you this question. If a church has a nasty, judgmental attitude towards the way people dress, the way they talk, the way they look, Uh, what kind of education they have, what kind of music they prefer, which Bible they read. If a church has a nasty older brother tightness about those issues, who would ever feel safe to repent? Can you imagine if the prodigal son was met by the elder brother? I mean, picture that one. Yeah. Elder brother, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Yeah, you're darn right you have. (laughs) You know? I am no longer worthy to be called your brother. You got that right. 
And so we look at the Father, we look at the Son who went off and slopped pigs, and then we look at the elder brother. And to some degree, each one of us is each one of these people. Now, I don't mean to be blasphemous. I know that the Father is God, that Jesus is speaking of God's acceptance of sinners. But all of us also have a responsibility to see the sinner when he's far off and to welcome him home and to throw a party. After all, the angels do it. The Bible tells us in Luke 15:7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so all of us have certain responsibilities that come out of this text, but I want to focus, uh, having spent some time on the elder brother, uh, I want to focus our, our, our thinking a little bit more on him before we come to a conclusion. What is it about us that, that makes us think that there isn't enough love to go around? I notice this most particularly when it comes to people talking about how many children a couple should have. What was it about this older brother that made him think that if this younger brother got some of his father's joy, that he would have less of it? I mean, you see that going on here? He feels personally that he's diminished by the celebration of his brother coming home. He's jealous of it. It must mean that he feels he's being robbed. So when another sinner repents with God, does that rob me? In other words, does God have a finite well, a finite source, a finite uh, treasury of grace and mercy and love? And if he shows it to the person in the pew next to me, who's a notorious sinner, does that take away from me? You think of people who say that uh, a couple should stop having children because they're not going to be able to care for their children. And I think, you know, it's obvious that such people are completely ignorant. <laughs> Why? Well, because it's been my um, consistent experience watching families with lots of children, and I don't consider five lots of children. Uh, that's just the middling amount. Um, but when you get up around ten, now that, that's, that's children. And it's been my consistent experience watching such homes that the love increases as the children are added. It doesn't decrease. Why? Because the more children you have, the more the selfishness of all the siblings is disciplined. The more the selfishness of the father having to provide for that family is disciplined. The more the selfishness of the mother and not wanting to have to go through labor another time is disciplined. In other words, it's a funny thing that the more people that are added to a church, the more threatened we all feel because after all, they take more of our elders and pastors and, and, and older women's time and they take our pew seats and, and sometimes they don't realize that we're there, there to be deferential towards us because we've been here from the beginning, you know? And really, there's not enough love to go around in a church, you know? Who wants a big church anyhow? Right? And so people go up to couples that have their third child and say, how many more are you going to have? Completely impertinent question. Nobody in the past would ever have dreamed of asking such a question. But we have this mentality that there's a limit to the fertility and love of a home. 
and we have that same attitude towards God. If God welcomes sinners, then there's not as much love for me. Well, this, this is not true. Um, Jesus is very hard on this kind of attitude. In Matthew 20, he likens the kingdom of heaven to a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And you remember the count promises to pay a certain amount to those who start at the beginning of the day and then those that start in the middle of the day and then those who start working at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, those who worked all day for the same amount of money are just furious. And you can see the elder brother in that. And they get angry and Jesus rebukes them. He says, look, if, if, if the landowner wants to pay them the same amount, what is that to you? He's kept his bargain with you. After all, the father says to this elder son, everything I have is yours. So, so why is it that we resent them coming home? Well, I believe that there's only one thing that can be behind it, and that is that we have lost our knowledge of our sinfulness. And that we, we don't realize, we don't deserve one good thing from the hand of God. We don't deserve anything. And the fact that a notorious sinner comes to the cross next to us is only proof of how low we are. And for us to look at them and, and look down our noses at them and, and make them suffer for the mistakes they made when their father is parting and killing the fattened calf and putting jewelry on them, it, it, it is a nasty thing for us to do. Nasty. Because it shows that we don't know how far down God has reached to give us the gift of faith. Now, finally, the prodigal son himself. Do you see yourself in this man who was off slopping pigs? Do you understand the story Jesus is telling? That you have nothing to take back to your father. You might think that you have something to take to God, but you don't have anything to take to him. And that's the point. Father, I have sinned against heaven, against God, and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's an absolute statement, and that is an accurate statement about me and about you. There is absolutely nothing that you can take in your hands when you go before a holy God and you throw yourself at his mercy. And it is precisely someone in that position that Jesus says is accepted and partied over. He brought nothing except absolute repentance and humiliation. And he was the one that all heaven rejoiced over. So then the question is, what could the prodigal son do to keep that father from welcoming him with compassion and partying over him? What could he do to keep that father from welcoming him home? And you know, there's only one answer. And the answer is, the whole time he was off in a foreign land slopping pigs. That whole time the father could not forgive him and welcome him home. In other words, a refusal to repent. Now, am I saying that God is not able to give us the gift of repentance? Now, I'm not saying that. Repentance is a gift. 
But Satan's perverse. And Satan will convince us that we have to do the work of repentance before coming home. We have to turn our lives around before coming back to the Father. But the Bible tells us what? Not just that the Father received this prodigal son, but the Bible tells us that while he was what? While he was yet a long way off, the Father saw him and he ran to him and he embraced him. And so, I I leave you with this. The only thing that bars us from the mercy of Jesus Christ is pride. A refusal to admit that we're slopping pigs and that we're no longer worthy to be called his son and a refusal to say, make us your servant. That is a sin against Jesus Christ. Because what it's really doing is saying that the work of Christ means nothing to us. And so, the application of this to you, if you are a prodigal son, is God resists the proud, but he has mercy on the humble. And those who turn to him with nothing in their hands, with nothing except an unconditional surrender, are the subject of all of heaven rejoicing. So, will you return? And if you're the elder brother, will you return? Will you admit how awful your attitude is towards your brother or sister or the people in the pews with you? Because the father is waiting also for the elder brother to repent of his nasty attitude and his lack of humility. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you will fill this church with men and women who are sinners.